Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome once more to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another day of cut and thrust, another episode of bait and switch, another example of the political world eating itself before our very eyes. This morning, the Prime Minister has been busy debunking a leaked report about an alternative to the Irish backstop, which would involve customs clearance zones. Meanwhile, the word on the street is that Boris Johnson is drawing up another cunning plan to present to the European Union as early as this week. We'll be hearing from the Prime Minister up in Manchester this morning at Tory party conference. We'll also be talking to Kate Hoey, Labour MP from Northern Ireland, on what the new border plans could actually be. 0344 499 1000. There's always been people that would say that there is, in fact, plenty uh, of opportunity and plenty of alternative reasons to do the backstop a different way. We shall be exploring all of that. 0344 499 1000. We want to hear from you, of course, as ever, because this is the one place where you hear the news unvarnished. You get the truth without it being uh, stretched to the limits of your imagination. Uh, The stories about... uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson groping women have only appeared on the front page of The Guardian this morning. Guess what? Their introduction says, Boris Johnson, senior minister, yesterday attempted to play down the allegations that he groped a journalist in a thigh at dinner in 1999. Well, guess what? Playing down, apparently, according to The Guardian, includes this quote. There is no truth in these allegations. Well, I mean, I don't think that's playing it down. That's denying it, I think you'll find, guys. Coming up later on, we'll get the latest from the coup in Westminster where none of the opposition leaders can even agree on who should be the puppet Prime Minister in Downing Street. And we'll find out what the government's plans are for tougher prison sentences. Are we really going to get control of law and order again? Is the Tory party finally returning to its roots? 0344 499 1000. Also, we'll be checking out what's happening in China where they seem to be unveiling a raft of rather high-tech and dangerous-looking weaponry and why apparently bacon isn't going to give you cancer after all 0344 499 1000 you'll listen to me mike graham right here on talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio 
Now, according to leaked reports early this morning, leaked specifically to RTE over in Ireland, it would appear that the government have got this plan, this cunning plan, uh, to replace the Irish backstop uh, with Irish border checks, which would be, in reality, a series of kind of, um, you know, off-to-the-side customs areas, customs zones, where there would be technologically controlled um, abilities for both sides of the border to control what goes on uh, on either side of the border and exactly how uh, transportation would move and how goods would move and how even people would move from one side to the other. The Prime Minister has rejected the leak, saying that actually that is not at all what they're trying to do, uh, but they are apparently working on an alternative plan. Let's talk to Kate Howey, uh, Labour MP for Vauxhall, of course, uh, who was actually up at Tory conference yesterday. Kate, very good morning to you. Good morning. Yes, I was at a fringe meeting on the backstop. Yes, so well, this is why we want to talk to you, Kate, because we figure you will be the person uh, in the know on this. So what, what exactly oh, is the plan? Well, of course, we don't know what the plan is, but I was pleased that the Prime Minister again ruled out quite clearly anyone supporting the backstop as it's presented at the moment. Mm. It's very clearly designed to keep Northern Ireland in a customs union and therefore separate out and also actually lead to the whole of the United Kingdom staying in the customs union. Now, I think there are, there have been a number of uh, uh, very, very good uh, suggestions being made over a period of time that uses a combination of technology and the kind of checks that already happen. I mean, people forget that there is a border there now. And I think we need to distinguish between a border and a frontier. A mm. frontier is the country. You're going into a different country. A border is we have a, bo a different border on, on, on uh, excise duties, on VAT, on, on, on the kind of uh, money we use, on kilometres and miles. You know, those things all happen. There are cameras at the border already looking at uh, speed, um, speed limits, for example. So, so all these things with technology, with goodwill and pragmatism can actually be made to work. Because the reality is, of course, the European Union does not want its single market uh, jeopardised, but we do not want to lose the advantages that we would get from leaving the European Union and having that control over our, our own trading arrangements. So I see it as, a, I, I'm, I, it's not just me, it's uh, uh, Professor Weiler from, um, who used to be the president of the European Institute, University Institute, came up with the idea of what's called a front stop. Right. And at the moment, you know, example, anyone who's flown out of Dublin to the United States, by the time they get on the plane, they, they're in America. So when you land in Boston or New York or wherever, you don't have to go through customs or passport because you're actually already in. It's all been done at Dublin Airport. Now, the kind of ideas that I expect they're looking at are having uh, well away from the border uh, opportunities for those uh, lorries or those trading um, vans that need to be checked. And remember, at the moment, sometimes vans and lorries are pulled in because there is a fear of something being on them, you know. And there's presumably, a lot of intelligence, yeah, no, no. there's a lot of intelligence, you know. Right, sure. Well, this is what Bob Stewart's always told us, that there are people watching, there is a system in place which you may not yeah. know about as an ordinary member of the public. And in fact, you know, one of the things that does happen, we know, uh, is there are random checks as well. Absolutely. And of course, none of this affects people moving across the border and cars moving across the border. And I think there's a, you know, it's, it's the same old thing, Mike. We've seen it every time anything is suggested, those who don't want us to leave the European Union come up with some kind of really exaggerated negative thing. So it's being implied almost that this would be, you know, you wouldn't even be able to drive over the border anymore. This, the, the common travel area, which existed long before uh, we joined the common market between the Irish, uh, Irish Republic and, and Britain, gives all that freedom, which Mm. still continue. So I think I, I'm very pleased that we seem to be recognising now that, you know, the reality is we've been in the European Union for well over 40 years. 
obviously something has to change. It's not going to be the same. But what if with goodwill and, and, and pragmatism, as I keep saying, if the Irish government were really genuinely not wanting to see uh, 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 any kind of no deal, which they say will be absolutely disastrous for them, then they should be jumping at the idea of working together. And of course, this was happening with the previous Taoiseach, Ender Kenny, who was allowing his civil servants to meet with Northern Ireland and British civil servants to talk about this when we voted to leave. And then Varadka came in and saw it as an opportunity to play, obviously get well in with the EU, because the EU wanted to make it as difficult as possible, but also because of that sort of lingering thing that there is still around about wanting a united Ireland. And this was a way of driving mm. Northern Ireland away with a border down the Irish Sea. So, uh, you know, I think Boris is, you know, I have to say the Prime Minister is, in my view, doing, if only we had been doing this from day one after the referendum, we wouldn't be in the position we are in now. But hopefully this is the beginning of the of, of, of the end of, of the situation because I do think everyone who says we have to be out by October the 31st is right. Business needs that certainty. And all the businesses who I speak to say to me, look, just... Just get out. Tell us what you you want to happen, and we will mm. work it out. We will work it well, out. Exactly. And are you confident, Kate? That I know you've got to rush off, but are you confident that the things that are currently being looked at and the things that you're talking about are not in breach in any way of the Good Friday Agreement? Oh no, abs absolutely not in breach. And of course, that's the other sort of almost red herring that's always brought in about the peace process. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement and, and Arlene Foster, who spoke at the same fringe as I did, made this so clear. It's about you know there has to be acceptance. On, on, on the unionist side for any kind of changes. And, and we don't have an assembly in Northern Ireland at the moment. But the, the peace process, you know, to threaten, it makes, makes me very angry that somehow we're, we're deciding or maybe looking at our economic policy, our trading policy, our customs policy on the basis of whether a few hardline dissidents are going to start sort of bombing again. You know, it's absolutely outrageous. What we should be doing is finding those people and putting them in jail. So I, I, I find that whole question of, in fact, the backstop actually is uh, is detrimental to the uh, Belfast Good Friday Agreement because it would not allow anyone in Northern Ireland to be representing people in Northern Ireland. It would, they would be being represented by, by the Irish government in the U EU if we stayed in the customs union. So it's clearly, uh, there is a solution here. There is a way forward. All the customs experts who are not sort of political are saying that it can work, but it needs the Irish government and the European Union to recognise that they're not going to get a, a withdrawal agreement a deal of any kind with a backstop. Quite right. Kate Hoey, thank you very much indeed. Kate Hoey, Labour MP for Vauxhall. She may not be a Labour MP for Vauxhall very much longer, of course, because she has intimated to us on this show previously uh, that she may not stand uh, in the next general election. However, uh, she will stand in the next general election if, in fact, we have still not left the European Union because Kate, uh, as you heard there, very passionate defender of Northern Ireland, very passionate defender of the union of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and also a great passionate defender of the Good Friday Agreement, which is used as ever... Uh, as a kind of fig leaf by Remainers who want to say that, oh, we can't touch anything in Northern Ireland. We have to leave it exactly as it is. We have to stay in the customs union. We have to have a special arrangement with Northern Ireland uh, and the Republic of Ireland in order to make sure that Northern Ireland stays inside the European Union. Well, apparently not. It sounds like an absolute load of old rubbish to me. And in fact, what we now know uh, is that Boris Johnson is actively working on a very, very specific plan to present to the European Union. It could be as early as this week. We have got an exclusive conversation with Boris
Boris Johnson coming up very shortly. Uh, he's been talking up at the Manchester conference uh, to talk radio because we need to know precisely what he has up his sleeve. Now, he doesn't want to give away too much, but for obvious reasons, he doesn't want to give away too much because why would he want to tell the opposition, the people who are trying to unseat him as prime minister of this country, the people who are plotting, even as we speak, how to somehow tunnel their way into Downing Street in the most undemocratic pooch you've ever seen since communist China uh, was made communist by Mao Zedong, right? We'll be talking about China a little bit later on. But these are the people who would like to derail, who would like to crash out of any deal uh, that they want to, to see Boris Johnson putting together because they don't want to leave the European Union. Joe Swinson has said as much. We've already got the Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, telling us all that he doesn't want to leave the European Union and he's going to vote to remain in it. He's going to campaign to remain in it, even if he became the Prime Minister. We've also, of course, got Caroline Lucas, who said that she doesn't want to leave the European Union. We've got Ian Blackford, the Westminster representative of the SNP. He doesn't want to leave the European Union either. The bottom line for me is the only party in this country that wants to leave the European Union, which is what you might call a Westminster party, because I don't count the Brexit party since they're not yet in Westminster, they may well be at some point, is the Tory party. Boris Johnson was asked this morning, if your latest Brexit plans were to be accepted by the European Union, do you think you would get parliamentary support as well? Well, I, I very much hope so, and uh, and, and we'll, we'll do our best. But, you know, we're, we're working very hard for a deal. We've got we, one step at a time. There is one step at a time. There is a deal underway. It is being worked upon. You can't blame the Prime Minister, however, for not actually having the confidence to share that plan with the opposition, because what you know about people in the opposition and even people who are at the Tory party conference, like Dominic Grieve and David Gork, these are people uh, who will do anything they can to derail the plan. And here's the second question that we put to Boris Johnson. How confident are you that you can get around what is now known as the Surrender Act? We're going we're gonna to stick to the Constitution and obey the law. We are going to stick to the Constitution and obey the law. Now, the Prime Minister has been very clear about that. There are lots of different possibilities of how they could get around the Benn Act. Hilary Benn, uh, who, of course, is the son of uh, Tony Wedgwood Benn, uh, the man who absolutely, to his core, hated the European Union, hated the idea uh, of a collection, collection of federalist countries running the European Union and running Britain. His son, Hilary Benn, has gone completely the other way, which is not unusual, come up with this Surrender Act, which, of course, people uh, seem to get triggered by people saying. So I'm apologising in advance if you are becoming triggered by me saying the word surrender, uh, or indeed humiliation or power perhaps capitulation. You might not like to hear that. But these are the words that are being used by people who don't think the Act is good for Britain. And I want to hear from all of you now. 0344 499 1000. We'll hear more from Boris Johnson later on in the show. We'll be talking uh, to Raphael Hogarth, Associate for the Institute of Government, uh, who wants to talk about how uh, there might be different ways of getting around the Ben Act. I remember having this conversation when we were in a tent down in Westminster last week. Some MP was saying to me, you can't just go around breaking the law. I said, no, you don't break the law. You get around the law. And and he was very upset about the fact that I kept saying it is indeed possible to get around the law. That's why you hire lawyers. That's why the law is there. The law is not there to be broken. The law is there to be interpreted and the law is there to be worked upon. And if you need to get something as complex as leaving the European Union done, there are certain laws 
that you might wish to get around. And what's wrong with that? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the place where you get your voice heard. This is the place where you hear the unvarnished truth. This is the only place where we can tell you precisely what is happening without fear or favour and without bias. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We'll take loads more of your calls, 0344 499 1000, uh, because we're going to speak uh, right now to Stanley Johnson, former uh, Tory MEP uh, in Brussels, of course. A man that knows a thing or two about the European Union. Stanley, uh, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Well, lovely to be here. Thank you very much. I can assure you that I will not be ambushing you in the manner to which you so much objected yesterday uh, by Kay Burley when she uh, started asking you about the family Christmas dinner. Well, Christmas is a long way away. No, very nice to, very nice to hear. We are, I think, at a very interesting, interesting moment. I'm very much looking forward to what the Prime Minister has to say tomorrow morning in his, in his speech to the conference. I think that the mood here is very much that Boris is the man uh, to, get this, to get this deal done. And I think, I think that is actually what's going to happen. The word the on the, the street, Stanley, is that Boris is working on a plan which may be presented to the European Union as early as this week. Do you expect him to perhaps not necessarily reveal what that plan is tomorrow, but to at least announce that, that that's what he's doing? Well, I think he'd be very well advised not to reveal any details of the plan. Um, uh, the European Union, as, as I know very, very well, will uh, you know, discuss it. And the moment you send it off uh, to, uh, to Europe, it'll be spread around all, all 27 countries. And I think at this particular stage in the negotiations, the more tightly they can be guarded, the better the better it'll be for everybody. I think it's less about giving it to the European Union for scrutiny as it is for the people on this side of the pond, uh, this side of the channel, who don't wish to leave the European Union, who seem to me to be more dangerous uh, against the plot for Brexit than the people in Europe. Well, I think I do agree with you. Um, I, I, as you know, you, you mentioned my European antecedents. Mm. I'm probably one of the few people who have served both in the European Commission for a long period of time and in the European Parliament. I lobbied very hard in the run-up to the referendum of 2016, you know, environmentalists for Europe and so on. But once that vote was taken in June 2016, I have been solidly in favour of trying to deliver the result of the referendum. That has been my position. And I've been supporting Boris, obviously, in, in this, in this endeavour. And I think that there's every chance that he will get an agreement with the EU, and I hope it's an agreement which will then pass muster in the, in the British Parliament. Yeah, one of the biggest problems he's got to uh, overcome in the British Parliament is his own MPs, the people in the ERG, uh, who, of course, were quite um, important parts of the scuppering of Theresa May's withdrawal agreement back in the day. Uh, three times it was turned down. Uh, many of those people in the ERG didn't vote for it. Um, how confident do you think uh, you can be about the fact that they'll come on board this time? Well, that's a very, very interesting point. A very interesting point. I've just had the pleasure of listening to the Lord President of the Council. As you know, the Lord President of the Council is also the leader of the House of Commons. That yeah. is to say, you know, the Right Honourable James uh, Jacob rees mogg yes. And I'm pretty sure that at least one pretty significant figure, a former figure of the ERG, is going to be solidly behind um, the government. And I suspect that most of the ERG will heave a deep sigh of relief if 
we get what is equivalent to, if you like, the Brady Amendment. The Brady Amendment, if you recall, got through Parliament. Yes. It's the only one which got through Parliament with any kind of substantial majority. And the ERG, I think, will rally round to that. I'm sure they will. Now, you've been involved and worked closely with and inside, in fact, the European Commission and the European Union Parliament. You must admit now, surely, that it's not the same beast that you first started working with. When you joined it, when you were an MEP, it was a very much less federalist kind of project, wasn't it? Well, I joined the European Parliament in 1979. I was one of the first people to be appointed to the European Commission at a senior level in 1973. I think that the, as it were, federal nature of the European Union has always been present right back to 1957 with the, with the Treaty of Rome. Possibly what has happened is that there has been an acceleration towards the federal goal, particularly, for example, with President Juncker's speech in, in September 2017, where he talked about, you know, a, a one government for Europe, ministers mm. with pan-European portfolios, the European Defence Force, and so on. So, yes, I, I'd accept your I accept your point of view that uh, there has been an evolution in in Europe. I'm not saying that that may not that evolution may well be what the Europeans want. It's not necessarily what we want, and that's what the and that's what the referendum I think has has picked up. Sure, and also isn't it entirely possible? Because I find people um, uh, calling me in, into this show, people tweeting me on the show as well, uh, who are very anti the European Union. You know, I'm not necessarily one of those people. I don't see why we can't leave the European Union, cut all ties with them in terms of trade uh, and in terms of political outcome, and yet still do it in a friendly manner. There's no reason why it can't be friendly. I am totally pro the European Union. I think it's a, 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 a great development, tremendously important. But the British people have voted for us to leave the European Union, and that is what we are trying to do. But one thing is absolutely sure. Once we have left it, we will need to continue to build our bridges with them, particularly in areas like the environment and uh, trade, obviously. We will need to build bridges with them. We'll need to build bridges with many other people. There are huge issues out there, climate change, for example, where we'll have to work together as important geopolitical blocks and we cannot afford to throw away all those ties. And we won't, I'm sure of that. No, I'm sure of it as well. And finally, uh, Stan, you know you have to rush off because you've got important people to meet. No, what not is at all. Boris's mood? Nothing right more now. important than talk radio. No, no, you're absolutely right. We'll clip that one. Um, what is Boris's mood right now? Because he is a man uh, who is being uh, besieged on all sides by, by people who don't wish him to succeed, by people who would seek to derail his plans. How is his mood? Well, that's the, point, that, that's the point he made today. I think he accepts that given that he is really trying to push through something which has failed to be delivered over three years, he is ready, and he said so this morning in various interviews, he is ready to experience, as he put it, shot and shell on all sides and I think that is that is what's happening I wouldn't say that as the father you know it's a particularly you know, I don't wake up I wake up thinking uh, you know how's the poor boy going to survive I know he is going to survive <laughs> nonetheless I'm very much looking forward to calmer waters in the days ahead yes indeed thank you very much indeed Stanley Johnson former Conservative MEP for uh, Hampshire East of course uh, a man that knows inside out the workings of the European Union and has said to me there as if you didn't know that it is a very different animal than the one that he started working for back in 1979 and that's the bit you don't hear very much on an awful lot of conversations about the European Union because it is not what it once was and it has plans to become something even more federalist and ever more different from what it is now.
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, we've heard and speak about many times on this show uh, stories of victims uh, who don't really get the support that they expect to get. We get stories all the time about people uh, who feel that the, the, the perpetrator of a crime against them did not get sentenced for long enough to go into prison for punishment. Other times we hear of people being released early because they've committed crimes which apparently uh, they have now served their time on. The problem for me with all of this is that actually... Um, People are not very confident in the system of law and order in this country. We have lawless streets in many parts of the country. In London, people are getting stabbed every day of the week. Uh, there are people attacking police officers every day of the week, some of them not even being punished with a custodial sentence. Let's find out now precisely what is going to happen uh, up at Tory party conference in Manchester. Guy Opperman, uh, former Justice Minister, now Pensions Minister, is with us. Guy, very good morning to you. Good morning to you, mate. Now, I don't think my categorisation or my description of the streets of Britain is wrong. There's an awful lot of violent crime I'm going on. Um, I'm not quite sure who's to blame for that. It may be that society has just become a very much more dangerous place. But is this an attempt to try and get control back for the good guys? Well, I think the key point is surely this. As soon as he was appointed, the PM uh, ordered an urgent review of sentencing. And we're just looking at sentencing to start with. There's a separate and wider issue about knife crime and the like uh, to ensure that the public are properly protected from the key and the most dangerous criminals. Now, in 2005, the Labour government decided that uh, you should get early release after 50% of your sentence. And effectively, what the reviewers found is that uh, violent and sexual offenders should be serving more time in prison and that uh, we need to be specific as to the way in which they are released and what uh, they should have when they release. Because at the moment, they are released effectively after 50% of their time in custody and effectively just released out of the door. We want to have them serving a longer period of time. It would be two-thirds. And then they would also be under very strict licence conditions. Does that so mean I, that you have to get better control of the parole boards of this country? I think the parole board do a good job. They are, you know, it is, um, uh, it is easy to criticise them. But I think, that by and large, they do a good job. What I think we need to do is we need to set the framework and the rules in a better way so that licence is properly done, so that we have real... 
um, regulation and, and control of individuals who are then released when they have committed serious offences. If we do that, then the parole board can get on with their job. One of the things that uh, I think people find quite frustrating is that we hear politicians making promises and then they don't always follow through. I was talking to someone from the Police Federation the other day uh, on this show and there was an incident of a police officer up in the northeast of England who had been attacked three times by the same guy uh, who had threatened him with an axe. He'd threatened to beat him up and I think he had punched him. And he didn't even get a custodial sentence. He got a suspended sentence. And I said to this Police Federation representative, well, how is that possible since I've already heard Boris Johnson say that basically any attack on a, on a police officer will immediately result in jail time. But it's not happening, he says, because the courts haven't yet adopted it. So um, let me just... I really want to deal with that case. So let me give you an example. First of all, I'm a North East Member of Parliament. Okay. I've been a Member of Parliament for nine years. If that's happening in the North East and this is not taking place, I'd like to know. And I'd be really curious to see how it is that his individual force... He doesn't need new powers. If a bloke attacks you with an axe, that's assault. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, you, it, what he needs is the police to charge the offender and the Crown Prosecution Service to bring the uh, offence. Uh, no, that you, was all done, but the point is the courts did not give him an automatic custodial sentence. And he says it's because the courts have yet to adopt doing that, if you see what I mean. OK, all right. So uh, I, I can't comment on the specifics of the detail, but I did nine murder trials as a barrister. I did 200 Crown Court trials. I did loads and loads of cases in the courts. And it is entirely fair that the judge should have the independence to make their decisions. But we should frame the law to ensure that it is uh, the victim who comes first, that there is the ability to sentence in the appropriate way. And then when the person goes to prison, that they then get the appropriate amount of training, mentoring, and actually we rehabilitate them. Because uh, you and I, the taxpayer, are spending thousands and thousands of pounds on people going to uh, prison, let's make sure we use it productively. We teach them to read. We teach them uh, to uh, write and actually to add up. You'd be amazed at the amount of illiteracy in prison, at least 50%. Mm. You give them an opportunity to get off drugs. Now, it may sound so obvious, but trust me, 20% of people who go into prison actually start their drug taking in prison. And you then got to be in a position uh, that you teach them skills. And there are great examples, whether it is Timpsons or the Oswin Project in the Northeast, of a great companies coming in and teaching people skills so that they do better when they get out. Are we in danger of creating, or have we already created, a kind of underclass of people who somehow get excluded from school, who start committing crime at quite an early age, who kind of end up being sort of shuff shuffled through the system, end up in prison, as you say, then get access to drugs, and it's a sort of vicious downward spiral. Is there something we could do in the education system, perhaps, to stop that from happening? Well, I think it first of all starts with parenting in the sense that if you or I choose to have a child, how are we going to build, bring up that child? Uh, that More specifically, though, then, uh, there is no doubt that it is difficult if a child is illiterate, is not attending school, is not, uh, and then starts to commit crime, and there is a significant proportion of the prison population who fit that cohort. Mm. And, uh, and I think, to be fair, it, you could, you know, it, every uh, government, every country has a cohort of uh, prisoners in their prisons who are people who have, for a variety of reasons, whether um, deliberate or unconscious, have uh, struggled to make it through the system and get all the support that uh, you or I take for granted, whether that is schooling, that is literacy, that is a stable upbringing, etc., etc.
No, of course. Because I think the trouble is that, you know, people who look at sort of the world of common sense, which, which I inhabit here, the independent public, Mike Graham, they say, well, how hard can it be to stop drugs from being readily available inside a prison? which is basically run by guards, some of whom may or may not be armed. But, you know, how is it possible that these places are more easily... Um, it's, easy, it's easier to obtain drugs sometimes inside prison than it is outside? So there is incredible diffi uh, difficulty preventing access to drugs in prison. Um, there are, you know, the, the drone situation has made it... You can have tiny little micro-drones that literally can fly through your tiny window, then come through the roof... Uh, uh, you genuinely, you people lob pigeons over the wall with drugs inside them. Uh, you send a book in with some spice impregnated into some of the leaves of the of the pages. It is extraordinarily difficult to stop doing it. The key thing is, is the individual prisoner interested and motivated to turn their life around? And if you if you treat everyone like a human being and you then give them the opportunity to turn their life around, then I think there is potential there. And so we need to be both carrot and stick. You know, the stick is you deprive people of their liberty. You sentence the serious offenders to proper sentences, which they serve uh, to a proper degree more than Labour ever did. And then you actually give them, though, the carrot of rehabilitation, mentoring and advice, possibly which their parents didn't give them, possibly which they slipped through the system going forward. Exactly right. And as far as getting this stuff sorted out, there's an interesting um, description in the story in the Daily Mail uh, about drunken electronic sobriety bracelets where people will be um, given these things to wear, slightly American style. Judges will be able to make offenders wear these tags in an effort to tackle booze fueled crime because alcohol plays a big part oh, in all massively. this, doesn't it? So, I, I mean, listen, I, I know So, uh, the people who've piloted this project, I've met them. They're, it, they're right. There's no question this works. And if you can, um, uh, tagging definitely, definitely works. Um, it is not a soft option. It genuinely is uh, game-changing. It's much cheaper. Bear in mind, you and I are spending about £40,000 a year on every prisoner. Mm. That's a lot of money to be spent on schools and hospitals and policemen and other things. If I can tag someone and monitor their behaviour and then intervene with them at a particular stage, it's way cheaper and way more effective. OK, so when would you expect some of this stuff to be brought in? For example, I like the conversation I had with the Police Federation. Will I be talking to uh, somebody in three months' time who says, well, you know, uh, we are unfortunately releasing this person early because that's what the rules say. When will we see the first time that this is not happening, when somebody is actually not released early? Well, I think the you will need some primary legislation for that. So you'll need a Queen's speech. This is why we need a Queen's speech. Yeah, when is that? Uh, well, October the 14th is when I believe it will be, when Her Majesty is booked to come, and I wouldn't want to disappoint her. No. Um, and I'm going to be there, and I, I sincerely hope uh, Boris Johnson will be our Prime Minister and not some jumped-up Jeremy Corbyn uh, cabal. Well, Prime Minister for a day, I think we should have sort of X-Factor-style conversation I, I like about that. that. I liked your idea of that, but although the concept of Jeremy Corbyn for an hour, let alone a day, yes. fills me with horror. It is rather unfortunate, isn't it? How's the mood up there at Tory party conference? Because uh, we, we spoke to Boris a little bit earlier on. He's talking about, you know, forging through and, you know, despite the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, etc., etc. Um, but how's it actually feeling? Well, I mean, I think that's Boris or Macbeth, isn't it? Um, so the... The long and the short of it is, there is a tremendous desire to get Brexit done, of course. That's the Hackney Freight, but I think there is. That is, I knocked on 600 doors in Hexham in Northumberland uh, last week. And the majority like of... a crime already. No, no, it's not at all. <laughs> Listen, I actually genuinely really enjoy that. If you, don't, if you don't like people, don't do my job. No, right. Um, genuinely, though, 
people are more interested in uh, the school funding plans that you know that we're raising up primary education up to four thousand pounds. We're raising up high school education up to five thousand pounds. Genuinely, people are more interested in the NHS plans that we're finding a way to invest the twenty billion extra money. Genuinely, people are much more interested in about the long-term economic plans for the and also the, the law and order plans, whether it's the twenty thousand more police or genuinely approaching sentencing in a different way. Mm. That it's much more. Both the conference and the doorstep is far less about Brexit and far more about the day-to-day things that people really get fired up about. Okay, go. And let me just ask you one final question, because later on in the show we're going to be talking about the vaccination story. Uh, Yesterday it was revealed that children might be banned from the classroom if they're not up to date with their vaccinations. How big of a problem is this? I think it's a massive problem, and I'm utterly in support of ensuring that no child goes to school without being vaccinated. It, It is absolutely the case that we are facing a public health crisis if we allow this to continue and your child or my child could be uh, threatened because uh, someone is believing genuinely half-baked nonsense nonsense that vaccines don't work and aren't necessary these are you know if you've seen the impact of measles it is you know really really serious Uh, you've got to got to get your child vaccinated Uh, the scare stories are ridiculous and I would advocate and support any uh, situation where a child uh, is required to get uh, vaccinated before they can go to school because they put all of that school and others at risk. Okay, Guy Offerman, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Former Justice Minister, now Pensions Minister, uh, with his support uh, for the idea that children could be banned from a classroom uh, if they are not properly vaccinated. I think I'd have to go along with that, to be honest, but we'll hear from you guys later on in this show because we want to hear your views, particularly if you are one of those people who's a bit suspicious about vaccinations because I'd like to know why. 0344 499 is the number. We've got lots more calls to take on the backstop, on Brexit, on many, many other things, of course, as well. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let me start off by reading you an email which we got from a listener who's called Rianne. She says that many years ago, my sister had the whooping cough injection, uh, which unfortunately days later left her brain damaged. Uh, This has left it hard for someone like myself to decide what is best for my children. For years, I've been told off by doctors, one admitting there was a link to the injection causing issues with children. I went to a doctor's appointment last week and a doctor tried to make out that I was an anti-vaccination parent, apparently like the ones who appear on social media. I soon put her right on that. My sister was not only left brain damaged but died in a house fire at 18. She probably would have got out of that house with us but because of her disability she was pulling back and refusing to come out. So having the injection basically killed her in more ways than one. My kids have had everything they can uh, but have not got the whooping cough injection sadly because they don't do those separate injections anymore. My two older sons, aged 17 and 16, had the three-in-one injection and separate ones without whooping cough in it. And then they had the polio drops. But years on, we do not do this and they do not give out polio drops. My issue, says Leanne, is for parents like myself, why uh, do like they not use, why do they not do separate injections for whooping cough and polio drops? I'm not an anti-vaccination parent. I just think that the combined our vaccinations are the problem. Let's talk to Stephen George here and find out what he makes of it all. Stephen, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Not at all. It's an interesting one, this, because I remember I had quite young children during the kind of MMR period back in, uh, you know, the sort of the turn of the century when Tony Blair was around. And I remember feeling as a parent slightly uneasy um, that Tony Blair, as Prime Minister, wouldn't tell anybody whether he had got little Leo, his youngest son, I think, um, vaccinated with the MMR. And that caused, I think, more damage perhaps than he even knew at that time. 
Absolutely. I, I guess it shows, doesn't you, that uh, what happens when, you're, when your leaders don't, uh, don't take the lead on really important uh, uh, issues. I mean, the issue for schools, as I'm sure your listeners will know, is that when you've got lots of children all together in, in a classroom, then if um, uh, one or two of them aren't uh, immunised, then the, then the statistics tell you that that's, uh, that could be potentially risky for, for the ones uh, for the others. So it's it, it's a tough one for, for schools, but I think we would, you know, what we've said is the science now is clear um, that those vaccines are safe and that um, parents should get their children vaccinated. Um, you know, what Gavin Williamson was talking about um, yesterday, um, sorry, what Matt Hancock was talking about yesterday was was some sort of harder edge to, the, to, to ensuring that, that, that parents get their kids vaccinated. And um, and actually, we're still only talking about very tiny numbers of people who haven't done that. So I think it's more about educating families who still need to get more information before they make that choice. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you know what the sort of numbers are here, because that's one of the problems, I suppose, with what you might regard as a slightly underground movement, because we've been trying to find people who would talk officially on this show about, you know, why they feel that they don't want to get their children vaccinated. But it's very difficult to find the organisations because they tend to be like sort of closed Facebook groups or people on Twitter who, who talk only to each other. And it's hard to know how many people we're talking about here. Well, yeah, and, and I would say as well, the email you just read out, right, I mean, it, you can't argue with someone's deeply held convictions, no. can you? I mean, that that's... That, that and, and their personal, experience, personal, and their that. personal so, yeah, experience as well. Exactly. And so, you know, what we know about schools is that children do better when there's a really strong bond between the home and the school. So where the school comes into this whole kind of um, melting pot, if you like, is that they have to have a good relationship with the parents first and foremost. Mm. So that um, if there is a little bit of education to be provided there in terms of vaccination, then that's an open and honest conversation that... That works for the for the child, right? That that's where that's where our, our members come in. But my understanding of the the, um, of the sort of percentages of, of unvaccinated children is that they really are very tiny, and 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 actually that makes me think that a kind of big government response of the one that Matt Hancock's describing right. is is maybe not the way to go because actually what you what you'd be better off doing is is reaching the small percentage of people who haven't yet got there. Uh, children vaccinated and talking to them about why it's necessary and what what they need to do rather than a kind of you know it feels like a very very big big government approach to something that maybe is, is more about educating a, a small number of people yeah although funnily enough i'm just looking at an example from australia uh, who have a, a sort of a slightly harder policy even than, than matt hancock does and they apparently were threatening to cut the family tax benefits for any australians who did not vaccinate their children which apparently uh, resulted in an increase of 174,000 kids being immunized uh, in the past 12 months so so i suppose you know you could be tougher if you wanted to be I guess. I mean, I suppose in government, you're always thinking, right, if I pull this lever, what will happen? Yeah. Um, aren't you? And and so I, I wonder in, in the Australian case you just cited, whether they had done that massive programme of education first and they hadn't seen the uptake that they wanted to see. Mm. So they decided to pull another lever after that. And I think that that's probably where you would hope the British government might be in terms of let's look at the problem. Let's look at the right lever to pull to get sort of 100% get to that 100% mark. And I think we're, you know, in the 
the mid to high 90s, actually. So do you see what I mean? We haven't got very far to go. Sure. So let's do, let's do that bit first. And then, you know, I would imagine that that's what they did in Australia before they came to a more... That may well be, I don't know. handed approach. I, mean, I, I guess the, the worry about government in this country at the moment is if you pull a lever, basically nothing happens, you know, because uh, you just go back to square <laughs> one. But that's not for me to say. But, I mean, the other issue is for me as well. This this There are people who would probably vaccinate their children if there was a single vaccine, but maybe are reluctant because it's not single and it's a, it's a triple vaccine. And my worry about that, I remember from the time of the MMR kind of uh, controversy, was that the reasoning seemed to me to be a financial one, to give three in one. Yeah, I mean, my kids are uh, 12 and 9 now. They've both had the, the triple vaccine. Yeah. Because, you know, we, you know, I think I came to it slightly later in time than, than you did by the sound of it. And... I think that by then everyone had sort of gotten through that, the, the jitters about the uh, the triple vaccine mm. because of what was being said online and what um, and what have you. Um, I suppose you'd need to talk to the medical professionals about why a, a triple vaccine and getting it all done in one go is, is the is the right approach. Yeah, well, I mean, I, from from those conversations at the time, it was pretty clear that it was a financial um, decision that was made by the NHS, and you know they're governed by finances as much as everybody is, and I don't differ from them having made that decision. But what I'm saying is, is that if it was easier and perhaps less expensive to do it singly for individuals who wanted to do that, that might be a way of dealing with it as well. It might be, but then I suppose if you, uh, you know, on a public health issue, and I'm, I'm, I'm going slightly out of my remit here, of course, but on a public health issue, I suppose you do have to recognise that there is a cost and that it's right for the state to think about the most efficient way of spending taxpayers' money to achieve that, that full vaccination result. And if the science says that the triple vaccine is, is safe as well, which it, it does, I believe, mm. then... You would you would have that conversation with with parents who were nervous about it and were, might say that they preferred it um, as a as a single option. Yes, and I mean, interestingly um, enough, I suppose if most children in school have got, particularly, let's take measles for example, a measles vaccination, and if somebody turns up who doesn't have it, technically, I'm assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, the people who have had the vaccination can't get measles if somebody comes in who is infected with measles. I, I think that's right, and again, I'm not... Well, otherwise, again, what not would, sure. I mean, I'm assuming it would well, be. Otherwise, what would be, what, would, what would be the point otherwise, you know? Yeah, 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 uh, exactly. And, and I think that, that's, um, that you may come into contact with children who haven't had it yet for whatever reason or, or, or haven't had, you know... There, there, may be, there, there are medical exemptions, aren't there, for certain children? And yeah. I suppose if, if, you were an, if you were unvaccinated for a different reason... Um, when perhaps you should have had the vaccination mm. and you came into contact with children who hadn't had it for legitimate medical uh, reasons, and, and again, those those are quite uh, well known, then that would be a that would be a risky scenario, wouldn't it? But to, just to bring it back to schools for a second, I think it's much better for schools to know that all of that stuff has been covered by the time uh, children arrive at the school gates, rather than involving schools as a sort of policeman or a checking system, uh, uh, or, or, or what have you. 
No, sure. And one of the other problems, it doesn't get talked about an awful lot, and I was reading a tweet out earlier from someone in New Zealand who said they've got currently a bit of a measles problem in New Zealand. There are, in southern Mediterranean countries, I'm told, quite big numbers of, of people with measles, quite, quite a big infection number, largely because of, of, of a lot of the sort of immigration coming from countries where there are no vaccination programmes, where people are coming in perhaps illegally uh, or perhaps legally um, as, as, as immigrants and are bringing measles with them. Yeah, and I don't know about that. But again, that's another public health issue, isn't it? When you're trying to affect the whole um, population, regardless of um, you know who they are and where they've come from and what have you, you do, you do need a, a, a wide public health approach to making sure that everyone is vaccinated. Yeah. And, a, and, a big, and a big part of that is obviously education, isn't it? Yeah, sure. And what would happen to children in the case of, uh, of, of this kind of policy, though? If you're excluding them from school because their parents haven't got them vaccinated, um, what if the parents still just refuse to have them vaccinated? Well, I think that, I think you probably sort of... That, that, that kind of shows you, doesn't it, why that approach has got all sorts of problems with it. Because if you haven't educated or you haven't had a discussion with parents and families about why it's necessary if their belief that they don't want it will mm. will continue so that doesn't provide a solution for the school or the child in that case but no. then we should we certainly wouldn't want children to uh, miss out on anything to do with their education just because there was a disagreement at a sort of parent and, and family level that wouldn't be right no, it wouldn't. But equally, you can see how it could easily kind of ratchet off into a, a sort of spiral downwardly where people just end up not sending their kids to school and, and, and because they feel more strongly about the vaccine than they do about education, they start homeschooling them or something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I suppose that that's why you kind of... All, I've said it a couple of times now, haven't I? But, and I guess I would because of who I work for. But that's why it's an education thing mm. rather than a sort of compliance or a bit, you know, or a, or a stick to... To, to beat people into get in, getting them to do what the state mm. wants them to do, you have to you have to take people with you, recognising the context that that uh, that we're in. There has been concern in the past. I think those kinds of concerns were proven to be erroneous, and there has been an education um, uh, issue there. And we, you know, we need to finish that job, make sure that that has the effects that that we want, and. If it doesn't, then maybe there are other measures to look at, but I wouldn't let the cart lead the horse on that one. Sure. Stephen, thanks very much indeed. Stephen George from the National Association of Head Teachers. Not entirely certain uh, that this method of making sure kids get vaccinated uh, by their parents who do not wish them to do so uh, is actually going to work if you try and keep them out of school. Is that going to be the answer? We're going to take calls on this because a lot of you have called up already uh, because you want to tell us stuff about this. We'll go to them very shortly. 0344 499 1000. Uh, this is Talk Radio. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. 0344 499 1000 is the number. You know what to do. We're talking about vaccinations and some parents are liking uh, for either single vaccinations or no vaccinations whatsoever. It's a small number, but in the last five years, uh, apparently, the numbers of people getting their kids vaccinated under the age of five has gone down year after year after year. Let's go to the phones and find out possibly why. Stephen uh, is in Leeds. Hi, Stephen. Yeah, hi, hi, Mike. Hi. Uh, lovely to speak to you. Yeah, Thanks welcome. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, not at all. What do you want to tell me? 
Yeah, all it is, I mean, I've made a few notes as to what happened. Okay. Now, my daughter, she was born in 2004, and right. obviously back then, uh, there were a lot of concerns about the MMR triple jab yeah. uh, and about possibly causing autism um, after the Andrew Wakefield reports. Now, about uh, we, we decided to go ahead with the MMR jab, and possibly about 10 days after my daughter having the jab, um, she had what we thought was a, a seizure, and she went uh, bright purple, had a high temperature, so we had to rush her down to casualty in Leeds. Right. Um, Must have been now, terrifying. Well, it, it, yeah, of course it was. Yeah, because we didn't, I mean, it was at night time, it was dark, and I, I didn't even realise what was going on because we were in complete darkness in the bedroom. Anyway, so we, we rushed her down to casualty, and they did keep her in for about four hours, and they did monitor her, and I did mention her having the MMR jab, but they didn't commit it if that would you know, would have caused what had happened. Now, when she was four, she was diagnosed with a condition called dyspraxia. Um, yes. I don't know if you've heard of that. I have, um, yes. It's, it's a bit like sort of a, a physical form of dyslexia, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they used to call it clumsy child yes. syndrome back in the day. Um, now, so she has problems with short-term memory, following instructions, and a poor grip, amongst other things. Now, we're currently on the... She's 15 now, and we're currently... We've been on the, on the waiting list for about a year with Leeds City Council for an autism assessment, right. and I think we're about number 30. Now, obviously, my concern is that... I, I can. It's only my personal experience, but I don't know if this MMR job actually caused it. Now, yes. It's very difficult. Is, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Did you ask it, at the time whether they could do it singly, whether they could do well, reasons much for better singly? I was just going to move on to, to the next part because they have to have a booster jab, don't they, when they get a little yes, bit older? Right. I don't know if it's when they're eight or something. Now, we decided to pay for that separately, and it was with a, a private company. Right. Uh, and I think I think we had to travel up. I mean, we live in Leeds. We had to travel up to, to Newcastle. Mm. And then they'd, they'd do the, the measles jab individually, and then... Uh, maybe a few months later, they, they did the mumps, and a few months later, mm. the, the rubella. Yeah. Um, and I think it cost me, it cost about, I mean, it was a lot of money to me. It was about £900. Yeah, that's but, a lot of money, yeah. But I couldn't put, I couldn't risk putting her through, again, what I thought had right. caused the problem, so... And did she have any reaction to the ones that she was given no, singly? nothing, nothing really? at all. And I, and I know that with me, you've already touched upon it, saying that maybe if there was a, a chance of separate injections... I think more people would take it up. Yes. Um, I mean, I've even, I mean, she's, she's like I said, she, she, we didn't even give her the HPV, sorry, HPV injection at school last year, right. um, which, again, because I've read about side effects and because what I think might have caused problems with her now, I'm just a little bit scared of... Well, it's a very odd system, isn't it? Because I've got a son who's going to be getting HPV, but I've got another son who's not because they haven't agreed to give it to everybody. They've only agreed yeah. to give it to certain ages. So it's very it's very sort of arbitrary, it seems to me. Yeah, well, well, that's it. And it, it, I mean, like I said, I really don't want to put other people off. It, it's only my experience. But because mm. me, 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 my other daughter, she's 12, and yeah. she, like I said, we give her the separate MMRs, no problems at all. She's doing really well at school. Right. Whereas my 15-year-old... She really struggles. I mean, yes. she only goes in in the afternoons. We've got an EHPC education plan in place for right. her. Um, but, she's, you know, it's, it's quite difficult. And yeah, whether bet. it is whether it is the MMR, I don't know. I really That's don't the know. trouble. You just never do know. But listen, Stephen, I really appreciate you telling us the story. I think a lot of parents like Stephen will never know uh, whether they did the right thing. And it must be terrible to have to think that, uh, that maybe something that you make it, made a decision on uh, could have caused something. But equally, it may not have. 
And I don't think we're helped by the way that the NHS kind of deals with these types of problems because they don't really leave you any room for uh, interpretation. They just basically talk to you like you're an idiot. They don't give you an option. They say, just do it. Because if you don't do it, you know, we'll punish you in some way. I think that's wrong. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.